0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the P-H, Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself. For a conversation with God's voice telling his side of your story. At the end of last week's episode, the infamous King Ahab has just struck up an alliance with the southern kingdom, whom we haven't looked at for quite some time. Well, since we last mentioned Judah, back before the northern throne changed hands seven times and then the three-year drought hit up there, Good King Asa of Judah has gone to sleep with his ancestors, and his son, and this really is his name now, his son, Jehoshaphat, has been reigning in Judah in the meantime. I wish I could tell you that Jehoshaphat was a track and field star in his day, specializing in pole vaulting, or even better, the long jump, or that he was the tall center on the Jerusalem basketball team famous for snagging rebounds. Of course, These things are all glaring anachronisms from your habitat that had nothing to do with his. Neither is there any reason found in his ancient habitat to cause one to think that this king of Judah, son of Asa, has any special leaping abilities. Someone in your habitat thought it was clever to put an alliterative adjective before his name, which is admittedly already fun to say aloud. Go ahead, try it three times now, no one's listening, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat. Now poor Jehoshaphat, not to spoil the fun, but his name actually means Yahweh has judged, and now poor Jehoshaphat, who should be known for the many good things about which we'll presently explore, he's forever sentenced to have his name preceded by Jumpen. It's the first thing you thought when you heard me say his name. Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. Okay, now that we've got that out of your system, a few things have happened in the south in the intervening years as we've been focused on the north, along with the writer of First Kings the chronicler again gives far more space to this southern king with a full descriptive chapter of Jehoshaphat's early reign, that would be 2 Chronicles 17, before his alliance with Ahab hits in chapter 18. So obsessed with Ahab is the writer of Kings that he drops Jehoshaphat into the story out of your basic nowhere in 1 Kings 22.2. 2. Jehoshaphat has been doing quite the decent job in the south. In contrast to Ahab's devotion to Baal, Jehoshaphat has maintained his devotion to me exclusively, something we clearly will never take for granted again. Jehoshaphat goes through the high places used for worship in the south, taking out the Asherah poles of the idolatrous and reminding others that I am to be worshipped at my temple in Jerusalem, not at the handy corner hill. He sought me and my ways as much as or more than his father Asa did, who did a fine job in his own right. As such, my hand of blessing and protection is on Jehoshaphat. His cities grow, his borders strengthen, and his troops are finely tuned. So now we've got Ahab as king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah. It's been three years since Ahab's last freka with King Ben-Hadad of Aram. Throughout that time, Ahab's biscuits have been getting more and more burned at the thought of his eastern border city, Ramoth-Gilead, remaining in Ben-Hadad's hands, gained during those early sniping days. Ahab resorts to asking for help from the south. Ironic, isn't it, for Ahab to enlist Jehoshaphat's help against Aram? Or were you dozing off at that point back then? I know we are moving through a lot of life in a relatively short period of time. It was Asa, Jaman's dad, who'd made an earlier alliance with King Ben-Hadad in order to get then-King Baasha of the north to let go of the towns he was annexing on Judah's side of the border. But that was years and five northern kings ago. Now all that is forgotten, or at least seems to be. This is Israel and Judah's first alliance since the big split. It could foreshadow reunion in the future, but of course doesn't. Spoiler alert. Ahab successfully lobbies Jehoshaphat for help in reclaiming Israel's border town, the mentioned Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab, being the kind of fellow who sits down to supper and just starts eating without thanking us for it, is ready to start marching the troops east as soon as everybody's gathered. Just then, though, my boy Jehoshaphat chimes in with, Let's ask Yahweh for his okay first, brings a smile to my face. Ahab brings in his sizable stable of sycophantic staff prophets asking if he should go reclaim Ramoth-Gilead, and their response is, Sure, Yahweh will totally hand it over to you, chief. More or less. 1 Kings 22.6, 2 Chronicles 18.5 The point is, something about these guys strikes Jehoshaphat as being off giving the whole lot of them a sidewise glance, he asked Ahab, Do you have any other prophets of Yahweh we can ask? Now, even if Elijah was having tea in the next room, you can bet Ahab would never call on him again for anything. The prophet's last words to the king were that dogs would be lapping up Ahab's blood sometime soon. Remember, though, that I had a man on the inside back when Jezebel was doing her ethnic cleansing and wiping out our prophets. Obadiah. Obadiah hid many of them in safety until Jezebel's focus narrowed to the demise of just one, Elijah. Well, one of those fellows rescued by Obadiah earlier, Micaiah, is still in the neighborhood. He's still faithful to me, and so still generally offers bad news from me to Ahab if ever the king asks Mike for a word. Not surprisingly, Ahab avoids him too. Well, Mike is brought in to satisfy Jehoshaphat's request, and the long and short of his word from us is that this campaign is not a good idea and isn't going to end well. For the full account of Micaiah's somewhat sarcastic turn of phrase, see 1 Kings 22, 1-28, or 2 Chronicles 18, 4-17. Ahab tosses Mike in prison and says he'll deal with him when he gets back, to which Mike mutters, No, you won't. And somehow, In spite of this negative encounter and warning to stay home, Ahab convinces Jehoshaphat that if one of them goes in disguise, Ahab, of course, everything will be okay. So they attack the city, with Jehoshaphat enrobed as the king that he is. Decide for yourself whether you think Ahab is doing this in hopes of Jehoshaphat getting killed. Ahab wears the garb of a common foot soldier. Ahab thinks this arrangement will throw the Syrians off, sending them after the king of Judah, while Ahab is safely anonymous. He's partially right, but as usual, not where it counts. Ben-Hadad does tell his men to ignore everyone but Ahab and to get him at all costs. When they see someone in king's garments, they assume it's Ahab. No one's told them of his alliance with the south. But when they get close to Jehoshaphat and he yells at them, they realize it's not Ahab's voice, and they back down. That option gone, a general old-fashioned full-on battle ensues in which, yep, you guessed it, Ahab is struck by an arrow. Now he finally claims a chariot to be taken out of the battle and watches it from the sidelines, where he bleeds to death as the fight ends in a draw. And if you've been paying attention... You already know who helps clean the blood off the chariot floor once they've got it home. Now, think about the last funeral you attended. A person's death naturally triggers a sense of retrospective in their survivors. And so, now that Ahab's ambitious life has run its course, let us look back on it a bit, even though you know already a good part of what we are going to say. Ahab inherited Israel's throne from his dad, Omri, the general turned king by coup. While Omri continued in the smorgasbord's practice established by Jeroboam, he was clearly a fellow whom people followed and could have reversed that course, but didn't. In the face of our power on Mount Carmel, our blessing in his solo battle with Ben-Hadad, and direct confrontation from both Elijah and Mike, Ahab could have wised up, broken the cycle, and changed things. Even in the bloodless transition of national leaders in your habitat, new regimes typically institute what they see as reforms to change the course of the nation. This potential for sweeping change is even more present in a monarchy, but it's a potential Ahab never even touches, much less fulfills. The lesson for you? Examine the path you're placed on. Look at the circumstances handed to you by the ones who've gone before you, whether they be your parents, the freshly retired boss whose place you've just taken, the class that graduated the year before yours, whosever shoes you find yourself walking in. Some of them are very fine shoes and only need a bit of attention and polish. Others, as those inherited by Ahab, could use a complete replacement. He could have made the change, but didn't. He just went on anachronistic autopilot and kept on doing everything the same way. If you're going to keep cruise control running in your life, make sure it's because you've intentionally chosen to do so because you think that's what I'd want for you. Otherwise, ask me how to make a few modifications to get more fully on the way. We'll talk more about the fallout from Ahab and his charming bride next time. For now, think about the changes you might need to make or affirm the things you don't think need changing. Ask me to help, and we'll continue our walk together on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.